a listener production. Every few weeks, there's a big announcement about a new electric vehicle and not from some weirdo startup looking to make a name for itself. These are models that are being released by major automotive manufacturers. So in early February 2021, Ford unveiled its absolutely slick looking Mustang Mach-E. It's a powerful fastback that's aimed at the American market. And then at the end of February, Hyundai took the wraps off of their Ionic 5, a gorgeous fastback aimed at the American market. And then at the start of March, Volkswagen showed off its first edition of the ID4. It's a, it's a fastback. I'm starting to see a pattern here. Americans don't want sedans. They don't do sedate. They want room in the cabin. They want power at their feet. And apparently... They want electricity. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci, and the coming next billion seconds will transform the way we live, work, and travel. In this series of episodes, we're doing a deep dive into this sudden drive to electrify all the cars. Is it real? Will it stick? Or is this just another gimmick that won't survive the many problems that still need to be solved? To find out the answer... We need to turn to the experts, so it's my great pleasure to welcome special correspondent Drew Smith back to our show. Over to you, Drew. Thanks, Mark. Now, you know, I've had this feeling before, that same sense of optimism, that same giddy rush that comes with the arrival of a promising new technology and with it, the promise of a better future. In fact, I felt it in... mm, About 2002. And the technology? Diesel. Okay, okay, the technology itself wasn't new. The diesel engine's been around in cars since the 1930s and famed for its fuel efficiency. But diesels were noisy. They were dirty. They were heavy and expensive and they were slower too. And filling up with diesel fuel? Well, it just wasn't as nice. Diesel stinks and leaves a nasty slick in its oily wake. In fact, so unloved were diesels that by 1990 they accounted for just 3% of new vehicle sales in Europe. But governments, aware that CO2 was fueling climate change, incentivised car makers to manufacture diesels and consumers to buy them. You see, in addition to being more efficient, diesels produce vastly less CO2 than their petrol-powered equivalents. And come 2002, diesels, we were told, were the future, and no manufacturer would come to embody the future better than Volkswagen. From the tiny three-cylinder Lupo to the sublime V10-engined Phaeton, diesel was the fuel of choice. Volkswagen even took diesel-powered Audis to Le Mans, the famous 24-hour road race, and wiped the grid clean. Because diesels were clean, right? And they were quiet and efficient, and they could be effing fast, too. 
diesel, it seemed, was a solved problem. And by 2015, diesel accounted for a whopping 37% of European sales. And we were well past the tipping point of adoption. (coughs) Until we weren't. Because 2015 was the year that Dieselgate broke. It was the year that Volkswagen's manipulation of diesel emissions was laid bare for all to see, leading to $30 billion of fines and the end of the diesel era as we knew it. Sales of diesels have been in decline ever since. And so it was 2015 that set us on the path to the next tipping point, the one we're exploring in this episode. The climate crisis wasn't going away and we knew that CO2 spewing petrol wouldn't help us. And one of the only viable technologies, the one that produced no CO2 at its non-existent exhaust pipe, was the electric vehicle. But here we find ourselves telling a somewhat familiar tale. EVs were expensive. EVs were heavy. They were even more inconvenient to fill up than diesels. And apart from Tesla's Model S, they couldn't go very fast. And they certainly couldn't go very far. In fact, EVs were so unpopular in 2015 that they accounted for one, yes, 1% of European auto sales. But cut forward just six years, and with government subsidies a go-go, mainstream manufacturers are pouring investment into the transition to EVs. New models seem to be coming to market with every passing week, and our friends at Volkswagen, for example, plan to launch 30 of them between now and 2025. And in September of 2020, we passed a momentous milestone. For the first time ever, sales of electrified vehicles, so vehicles that rely on electricity for some or all of their power, matched the sales of diesels, with each taking 25% of the European market. And in the final quarter of 2020, battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids accounted for almost 20% of sales in Europe alone. Yes, it feels like a tipping point. But unless your EV is recharged with renewable energy, you're just shifting the production of CO2 higher up the chain. And the rare earth minerals required to produce their batteries and electronics? Well, their supply chain isn't particularly secure either, with around 80% coming from China. But before we get ahead of ourselves, there are a couple of really practical questions I wanted answered. Like, Is this really happening? Are we finally going all in on EV in Europe? And if we are, how are we going to charge them all? To answer these questions, I'm going to be speaking to one of Europe's leading experts on the EV transition and infrastructure to find out. To answer the big questions about EV adoption in Europe, I got in touch with one of the leading experts in the field. His name's Richard Hackforth-Jones, and he's part of KPMG's Mobility 2030 team in the UK. So here's, here's where I'd like to kick off. I have been moving back and forth between Amsterdam over the last couple of months, uh, has set up home in that new city, and boy, like the difference I see on the streets in terms of the prevalence of EVs 
kind of compared to what I've been experiencing in central London is pretty dramatic. And it feels like, particularly in the Netherlands, we might be at a bit of a tipping point when it comes to EVs. What's going on? Yeah, I'm, I think the first thing I, I'd, I'd want to say is that uh, for someone, and you're in the same space, like for someone who's been kind of banging the EV drum for a few years now, it's been one of those things where since the pandemic started, kind of months, I think as Lenin kind of said, like, uh, you know, there are decades where nothing happens and then there are months where decades happen. And that, you know, the last 11, 12 months have really accelerated. And that's, that's for a load of different reasons. Uh, you know, like the, the reduction in car sales across the board, but not with, with BEVs, right? And so that's in, meant a, a massive increase in the proportion. And then there's also, you know, the desire to build back better. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of side has just led to this kind of real momentum of EVs take, uh, taking over. And you've seen it just in the last couple of weeks with like JLR over here in the UK and then Ford uh, announcing their kind of all-electric strategies for, you know, for, for, JL, for Jaguar who come in an all-electric brands for, for Ford. They're going to have be all-electric for passenger vehicles by 2030. It's either going to be plug-in or all-electric by 2026. And that's quite aggressive for, for a brand like Ford. So... It's yeah. It it's really kind of become starting to become mainstream. What what will take a bit of time is the the adoption to to kind of catch up because of you know the asset cycle of you know people don't buy a new car as often as they they buy other things. But you can sense that that mental shift is is definitely taking place, especially in somewhere like London. You'll you'll have seen it in in Amsterdam as well. London. Amsterdam, I hear you ask. These all sound like places that would be flush with EV infrastructure, you might argue. And in the case of my new hood in Amsterdam, you'd most certainly be right. From where I'm sat today, however, in North London, the picture is decidedly less rosy. And yet on my street, there's two Teslas, an electric Audi A3, and one of those achingly gorgeous new Polestar 2s. And yet I've never once seen them plugged in to a charger. So what is the story with charging infrastructure and do we really need chargers on every street to make EVs as convenient as their fossil fuel brethren? Over to Richard. I think there's a bit of a viewpoint around infrastructure that there, there kind of isn't enough. And I take a bit of a, a contrary view, I guess. Um, one of the things I always kind of point to about when people say, oh, there's not enough chargers, there's not enough chargers, is um, especially kind of people who, are, who see that as a big barrier. I, I kind of point to a plug socket and say, like, I've got a cable that can charge my car. Admittedly, if everybody did that, it would, it would really mess things up because they're not, they're not smart. But, like, for right now, I can, I can charge wherever there's an elect- electrical power. Um, that also means that I can then, uh, with an electrician, upgrade it, which I have done, upgrade my, my socket and put in a 7-kilowatt uh, charger, which is the same as the the public charger that uh, you're giving out the same output as the public charger that's down the road. But there's so many other options of what you could be doing. You could be charging at home. Uh, you could be charging at work. Um, lots of uh, workplaces are, are looking at installing workplace charging and they give, give, give it away for free as, as a perk. Um, or, or you could be charging at you know supermarkets when you're doing your weekly shop. You still could be charging with that uh, 
what would you call petrol station experience because there now are these ultra fast you know 150 uh, kilowatt plus uh, chargers like shell bp uh, have been installed in them instavolt as well in the uk fastnet in the netherlands um and you can still get that you know park up for 10 minutes go to the bathroom come back and you're you're ready to go but actually that's almost uh, the exception whereas actually you can use your charging and it'll be cheaper for you if you stay a bit longer but then you combine it with doing your weekly shop or maybe you know for, for me it would be going to watch the football and leaving it parked for a couple of hours on a seven kilowatt charger and actually that that does quite that extends your range by quite a lot so i think we're going to see it's really interesting how people's behavior will change but those coming new at this are in that kind of mindset of i need you know where's the nearest petrol station and it's going to take me ages but actually you can almost have a petrol station in your house like <laughs> except it's just tapping up topping up your uh, your petrol uh, you know just a lot slower and it it's something that people haven't kind of got their heads around yet uh, uh, but with more people adopting it they will and they will that, that that's kind of that's kind of nice it's um you only need to go for those quick ones when you're doing the, the 150 200 mile journeys uh um, you know research has shown that that's like less than 10 percent of your of your refueling uh your charging as it were so with electricity pretty much Everywhere in Europe these days, keeping our EVs charged isn't really about infrastructure then. It's much more about a cultural shift, a change in the way we think about keeping our cars topped up, rather than brimming the tank and running it down to empty like we tend to do with fossil fueled cars. We need to think of EVs more like mobile phones, as something we plug in and charge whenever the chance arises. Now, I couldn't let Richard go without asking him my co-host Sal's Favorite question. But what about hydrogen? There's an there's an app I use for for charging in the UK that that shows you all the charge points, but it also shows the hydrogen filling stations. The last time I checked, it's about thirteen of which I think six or so around London, and they're like two or three by Aberdeen. So um, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of kind of difficult. Um, but what what I what I so I think for the you know Richard's viewpoint on this, my my viewpoint is. For the passenger vehicle, you know, the journeys are shorter right within Europe. Um, you know, the, the distances are, are shorter. And so, it, you know, the driving patterns, you're not doing a, a Sydney to Melbourne or, you know, an LA to San Fran uh, drive that, that people don't really live that way. And also, you don't need to just buy kind of traditionally, our cars are kind of smaller. Uh, so less payload, less need for as much power. So I don't see hydrogen really uh, making a dent in the passenger passenger market in the UK uh, and Europe uh, for that matter as well. I, I think it's still an open question for, for the US and for, for Australia as well. Uh, but uh, for Europe-wise, it, it looks pretty dicey. So I'm sorry, Sal. No hydrogen soup for you. Not in Europe, at least. Back to you, Mark. Thanks, Drew. Now, if you've listened to this show before, you know that co-host Sally Dominguez really does have a passion for hydrogen and beyond. So Sal will explore the current state-of-the-art in fuels on our next episode. 
This episode of The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Drew Smith and Mark Pesci, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. If you like this show, hit the subscribe button. And if you know someone who might like it too, please share it with them. For more about the topics on our show, visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. Listener.